0: 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 17 through chapter 3 verse 6 you can find this in your pew bibles on page 965 For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word but as men of sincerity as commissioned by God Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, all. Everybody doing all right today? Good to see you all. We are continuing on our sermon series on 2 Corinthians. And if you've been with us uh, for the past, I don't know, a month and a half or so, uh, we've been tracking along with Paul's letter to Corinth, and we've been looking at a number of the reasons for why he wrote the letter. I want to introduce our sermon this morning by reviewing one of the primary reasons that Paul wrote the letter— And he wrote to the Corinthians uh, significantly, in in part, to critique their unhealthy theology of glory. We've talked about this a number of times um, since we began our sermon series. We're going to talk about it some more uh, today. But this unhealthy theology of glory, the idea that the Corinthians had and we can often get to, is that being united to Christ would mean being united with His victory and His triumph, and earthly victory and triumph. But as we saw last week, being united with Christ doesn't necessarily mean triumph as much as it means being led in triumph, which is a very different thing. And so, the Corinthians and their unhealthy theology of of glory were Neglecting the theology of the cross, that it's as we participate and share in Christ's sufferings and in his hardship, particularly his cruciform suffering and hardship for the sake of others, that we enter into and experience Christ's glory. But the Corinthians were trying to get to Christ's glory without going through the pathway of the cross. And so Paul is writing to them to critique this unhealthy theology of glory. Now, where did the Corinthians get this unhealthy theology of glory? Well, I suppose they got it from the same place that we all get it, right out of the human heart. I want glory. You want glory. They want a glory. We all want glory, right? So it's pretty natural to us as human beings that we want to try to get to as much success and prosperity and glory as we can with as little of a cross as we can, right? That's, that's kind of put it in the Christian terms, but the whole world wants that, right? We want to get to glory without... The cross it's just the natural way of things but the corinthians weren't just getting their theology of glory from their own natural human impulses they were also getting their unhealthy theology of glory from the super apostles now i've mentioned these super apostles in previous sermons but they've all just sort of always just kind of hovered in the background ominously we haven't done a deep dive yet on the super apostles But today in our passage, we see Paul taking his first swipes at the super apostles. He's going to start engaging with the problem that is the super apostles in the lives of the Corinthians. Throughout our passage, he's going to contrast his ministry, his God-given apostolic ministry with the ministry of the super apostles. Paul's ministry comes with a true glory that comes from God, while the super apostles ministry comes with empty earthly glory that comes ultimately from man. And as we watch Paul engage with the Corinthians about the problem of the super apostles, I want to draw out three points of application that will help us as we think about our own tendencies towards theologies of glory. So, the first point of application is going to be about the emptiness or a critique of theology of glories. And then the next two points of application are going to be about the value of pursuing God's glory. So, three points of application. First is a critique of the Corinthians' theology of glory or the super apostles' theology of glory. And then the next two points of application about the value of pursuing God's theology of glory through the cross. All right, so our first point about the dangers of earthly glory. Earthly glory, here's the first point earthly glory leads to empty dreams. In verse 17 of our passage, Paul begins talking about this contrast with the super apostles by saying this We are not peddlers of God's word, but we are men of sincerity, commissioned by God, and in the sight of God, we speak of Christ. Now, all throughout this passage, Paul's going to contrast his ministry with the super apostles, and he knows about the super apostles, and the Corinthians know about the super apostles, so he can reference them obliquely and indirectly like this, and the Corinthians know what he's talking about. Now, we don't know about the super apostles yet. We haven't really experienced them fully, so we might miss some of his indirect references if we don't are brought up to speed on the super apostles. So when Paul is saying, We are not peddlers of God's word and we are men of sincerity, he is saying we in contrast to the super apostles because the super apostles are peddlers of God's word and they are not men of sincerity. And in order to get our head around the super apostles and understand how it is that Paul is referencing them, we're going to flip ahead in our story, as it were, to chapters 10 and 11 of 2 Corinthians. So you want to have your Bible out. I'm going to be picking a number of passages out of chapters 10 and 11. So keep your, your thumb or your ribbon uh, here in 2 Corinthians 2 and 3, but turn ahead uh, to chapters 10 and 11. And let's, let's get a look at these super apostles that are peddlers of God's Word and that are not men of sincerity and see the problem that they've caused to the Corinthians. All right, now the super apostles were sophisticated, eloquent, cultured, Rolex watch wearing Jewish false teachers. They had come in behind Paul after he had done his ministry there in Corinth, and they had come in behind Paul and they were kind of taking up the mantle of leadership in Corinth. And they were the ones that were leading the Corinthians. This was kind of the critique that Paul was bringing. And we get the term super apostles from chapter 11, verse 5, where Paul refers to to these uh, teachers that have come in. He says, indeed, I consider that I am not inferior to these super apostles. Now, this is where we get the term super apostles is from 11.5, and between you and me, I don't think he actually thinks they're super. right, we'll see in a second here. He uses the term super apostles, uh, ironically, but the super apostles did think that they were super apostles. And in their estimation, Paul was inferior, and particularly inferior because of his, his lack of speaking skills. So look back in chapter 10 to verse 10. The super apostles were saying, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. In other words, in person, he's not much to look at. He doesn't carry much presence with him, and his speech, some translations say his speech is contemptible. It's not, he doesn't speak well. Now, in Paul's day, rhetoric, or the capacity to speak publicly and to hold a crowd, was a huge deal for people in leadership. I mean, it's a big deal for people in leadership now, but... But in Paul's day, it was especially so. Up-and-coming politicians and other public speakers or public leaders, if you aspired to to leadership, to any kind of public leadership, you would go to school and you would spend years learning the art of rhetoric, how to speak well. Because the idea was that if you had something really important to say, you you must be really good at saying it. And if you're not good at saying it, then you probably don't have anything really important to say. And so you were judged on your capacity to speak and to hold a crowd. And so the, the super apostles, who apparently were very skilled at speaking, probably had been to, to some sort of rhetorical school to learn the art of speaking, were critiquing Paul for not being a very good speaker. And so look here in chapter 11, verse 6, Paul says, Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. And Paul's saying, okay, fine, I'm maybe not the best speaker in the world, but I have knowledge. But in the eyes of the super apostles and in the culture of that day, it didn't matter how much knowledge you had. If you couldn't say it with eloquence and sophistication, just forget about it. So the super apostles were dismissing Paul because of his, his untrained, unimpressive ways of speaking. But if that wasn't bad enough, the super apostles also are dinging Paul for his failure to charge the Corinthians for his ministry among them. Their logic, which is the same logic that kind of operates today, is that if you have something valuable, you shouldn't just give it away for free because that undercuts the value of it, right? So if you have something that's worthwhile, in fact, charging a bit more shows that the thing is really valuable. You call it the Harvard Principle. Right? Is that, that if you give away your education for free, no one's going to value it. But if you charge an arm and a leg for it, everyone must think, oh, this is, must be really important. Right? And, the, and the super apostles are doing that. So when they come to Corinth, they don't just give away the gospel teaching for free. They charge for it. And their critique of Paul is that when he came, he just gave it away for free. So look here in chapter 11, 7 through 9. Paul says, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So Paul had support from other churches because when he came to Corinth, he didn't want He didn't want his ministry to Corinth to be compromised by asking them for money, so he brought his support from other Christian communities. But when the super apostles came, they said, hey, we're bringing something so valuable, you're going to have to pay for it. And the Corinthians were paying for it, and this was a charge or a, or a, a, a slight against Paul. But the super apostles weren't just charging for their gospel preaching, they were gouging for their gospel preaching. Look at verses 11, 20, and 21. They were coming to the Corinthians, and they were taking advantage of the Corinthians. And Paul says, For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. And Paul's saying, we didn't come and lord it over you. We didn't come and put on airs. Right? We were too weak for that, that's how the super apostles would describe it. But here they come, and they're lording it over you, and they're putting on airs. They're even striking you in the face, and they're, they're, they're making your lives harder. And you think that that's somehow a sign that they're superior and therefore have something important to give, but it's not true. So the super apostles are coming, and they're charging for their gospel, they're gouging with their gospel But it gets even worse because the gospel that they're charging for and that they're using to gouge the Corinthians is a false gospel. It's not even the true gospel. Look at chapter 11, verse 3. Paul says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his coming, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one that we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So these super apostles are coming with a false teaching, with a false gospel. We don't know exactly what they were teaching, but based on what Paul is going to say in the the verses that come and through the rest of chapter 3, which we'll look at next week, it's clear that they're mixing together the gospel of Jesus with the law of Moses. This is why Paul in chapter 11, verse uh, 21, midway through he says, but whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of. Are they Hebrews? He's talking about the super apostles. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. So the super apostles were coming and they were presenting themselves as enlightened Jewish teachers and they were using that to lord it over the Corinthians and they were mixing together their Jewish heritage and their Jewish faith with the with the new covenant teachings about Jesus and they were saying that if you wanted the fullness of the new covenant experience new covenant experience if you wanted to really receive the spirit if you really want glory then you got to listen to us because we we're the we're the children of Abraham we were the first one on the boats We're the ones that really understand how this works, and so we can guide you and teach you in the true ways of the new covenant, and it's by following the old covenant. Now, keep it, and Paul was against this entirely, as he's gonna go on uh, to make this point in the remainder of chapter three. Now, keep in mind that Christianity was birthed out of Judaism, right? So when Christianity shows up on the scene in the first century, it's coming out of the womb that is Judaism, and it's the better part of two decades before the gospel goes really from Judaism out into the Gentile world. So all the first Christians, all of the apostles, all of the leaders of the church, they were all mature, deeply, deeply religious Jewish believers who knew the scriptures, they knew the Jewish prophecies. They knew the proper ethics the people of God should follow. They knew how the whole plan of redemption fit together. The Jewish believers were the OGs of Christianity. Now, the first service, no one understood that. It's our older crowd. Maybe a few of you, maybe this morning, kids up there in the balcony, perhaps you understand, right? But the, 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 uh, the first Christians were, were, the, were the originals, or the Jewish Christians, rather, were the originals of Christianity. And so you can imagine how it would have been for the Gentiles The Gentile pagans, as they're converting into Christianity, they don't know any of the Jewish scriptures. They don't know anything about the Jewish prophecies or history. They don't know anything about the Jewish ethics that the people of God are supposed to be living. In short, they feel like newbies to the whole new covenant dinner party. So they're sitting there at the table and they're like, which fork do I use again for the salad? And where do we put the napkins? And that sort of thing. Like they really don't understand a lot of it. So along come these super apostles, looking all sophisticated and together. And, and then the Gentile Corinthians, in their prioritization of earthly glory, they let themselves be led astray from the purity and the simplicity of the gospel. So much so that they're letting themselves be taken advantage of. Right, so that's what's going on in Corinth. Now, what can we draw from that in our first point of application? Well, I think this is just how life so often goes, We chase after earthly glory, and then we end up being taken advantage of by it. Have you ever fallen into that same trap that the Corinthians are in here with the super apostles, prioritizing and idolizing the earthly glory that you see in someone else? Think for a moment about who you most admire and who you most look up to. Who are the super apostles in your life? Who do you follow on Facebook or Instagram, Twitter, TikTok? I don't even know all the different ones out there. Who do you admire at work or at school or in your industry or just life in general? If you could be like anyone, who would you want to be like? And then why would you want to be like them? Consider that for a moment. Why do you want to be with them like them? Is it their wealth? Is it their beauty? Is it their social prestige, their status, their coolness, their popularity, their accomplishments, their charm, their sophistication? What if all of those things were taken from them? Would you still admire them and want to be like them? There's nothing wrong with those things. There's nothing wrong with wealth and beauty and social prestige and status and coolness and popularity, sophistication. There's nothing wrong with any of those things, but there's nothing inherently right with any of those things either. When we idolize the earthly glory that we see in others, we run the risk that we'll be led astray by it. We labor so hard to acquire material possessions so that we can feel safe and taken care of by the things that we've put around us. But then we spend the rest of our lives taking care of the things that we went out to acquire to take care of us. We gotta take care of our cars, we gotta take care of our houses and take care of our clothes. and We exhaust ourselves taking care of the things that were supposed to take care of us. We strive so hard to be like all the beautiful people that we see on Instagram in our feeds, and we spend our days scrolling through Pinterest hair and fashion tutorials, which guilty as charged because, let mean, this, <laughs> this does not happen by accident, and I can't tell you how long I have spent on Pinterest trying to make this look like this. But the more that we do it, the more we end up disliking ourselves, and the worse we feel about our appearance. Or we work so hard to be popular and liked, putting our best foot forward all the time, particularly on social media. And even when it's, but then when it's put forward, it's really just an airbrushed foot that we're putting forward. It's a doctored photo of our foot. It doesn't really reflect who we are. So then we put our heads down on our pillows at night, still feeling empty and unknown, Because who we present ourselves to be in order to be popular isn't even really who we are. So all the accolades that we may get, it doesn't really matter and affirm us. We work so hard to be successful in our careers, but after we've reached the top, we find ourselves exhausted and asking, is this all there is? It's just another version of midway up the ladder. There's really nothing up here. When we chase after earthly glory, it's It only leads us down empty and lifeless paths. Not because we can't obtain it. And this is an important point. It's not because we can't obtain it. It's because even when we do obtain it, there's no life in it. We chase after earthly glory, and sometimes we can't get there, but sometimes we do get there. But either way, there's no life there. And kids, people, I'm telling you, Don't chase after earthly glory. Earthly glory is not inherently bad, right? Nice hair and a beautiful face and wealth and popularity. These aren't inherently bad things. But when we chase after them, when we orient our lives after them, when we find our identity in them, they become bad things. Earthly glory, as glorious as it is, isn't the pathway to true eternal glory. The world is full of wealthy, beautiful, popular, smart, successful, deeply unhappy people. Because those things can't bring us happiness. Because the glory that really matters is not the finite earthly glory that comes from man, that comes from the super apostles, but the infinite heavenly glory that comes from God and, his spirit. and that leads to our second point. The earthly glory doesn't lead us to happiness. It's God's glory that leads us to true validation. All right, so back to our passage here in uh, chapter, uh, we'll pick up in chapter 3, verse 1. In 3, 1 through 6, Paul continues this contrast with the super apostles. And in 3, 1, he says, Do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation, and the sum that he's referring to is the super apostles. Paul is saying the super apostles need letters of reference, but we don't. Now, what is Paul talking about here? Paul is referring to a customary practice in the ancient world where folks in one city would write a letter of recommendation or reference to folks in another city on behalf of a person that was being sent from the first city to the second city. So let's say Cicero, good Roman citizen, he commissions Marcus to go to Galatia to conduct some business on Cicero's behalf. Now the folks in Galatia don't know Marcus, but they they know of Cicero. So Cicero would, would write a letter of recommendation extolling Marcus's virtues and his accomplishments and why Marcus could be trusted. And then he would give the letter to Marcus to carry with him. And Marcus would go to Galatia. He'd present himself, introduce himself, and he'd present his letter of reference. And the letter of reference would pave the way for Marcus to conduct his business there in Galatia. Now, this was the customary practice all throughout the Roman world. And no doubt, the super apostles showed up with letters of reference from important people, probably folks back in Jerusalem, who are, again were the, were the center, the epicenter of of, of, of Christianity is emerging out of, and all the original patriarchs are there back in Jerusalem. And so these super apostles probably show up with references from, from people back in Jerusalem, and these letters of reference would have said all sorts of important things about the super apostles, would have listed all their great accomplishments, their earthly glory, and their successes, about how eloquent of speakers they were, where they had received their training, who they, how they had been um, uh, how they were knowledgeable in the whole law how they were had been successful leaders of this or that christian community in other city, in other cities about how perhaps they were generous financial benefactors which would have just been code for they're very wealthy and so forth and so these letters of reference that the super apostles would have brought would have extolled all of their virtues but paul is saying that as true apostles our apostolic ministry is so legit, we don't need the customary letters of recommendation. We have been commissioned by God, sent into the world to conduct His business, and as such, our validation doesn't depend upon the traditional letters of recommendation or reference, but upon God Himself. Now, Paul isn't saying he has no letter of recommendation. He's just saying he doesn't have a traditional letter of recommendation. Our letter of recommendation, Paul says in verses two and three, is you, you Corinthians. The letter of recommendation that God has given to Paul to carry with him in order to prove that he was commissioned by God is not some letter written on ink, written with ink on paper, but is God's work of the Spirit among the Corinthians themselves. And the point that Paul is making is that his validation comes from God's Spirit and is not based on mere earthly validation like the super-apostles. The changed lives of the Corinthians was the proof of God's apostolic calling in Paul's life. And this, Paul says in verse 4, is his confidence before God in Christ. Such is the confidence that we have through God towards Christ because of this work of the Spirit that has been written on the heart, not by human hands, not written with ink on paper. In other words, it's the Spirit's work in Paul's life that is then validated by the Spirit's work in the Corinthians' lives that validates Paul's apostolic ministry as a legitimate new covenant ministry. So the super apostles, they looked to the validation of their fellow man while Paul looked to the spiritual validation that came from God. All right, so here's our question. Where do we look for validation? Where do we look for validation? Earthly forms of validation are not inherently wrong, but does your sense of validation go deeper than that? Who tells you who you are? Who gives you your letter of recommendation, so to speak? Your parents, your spouse, your friends, your work colleagues, whose opinion of you matters most to you and shapes your opinion of yourself. We all care what people think about us, and we should care what people think about us. God didn't make us to be little islands of isolation that are impervious to the opinions of others. But the opinions of others are not to be the ultimate deciding factors in our identity or our understanding of who we are. God is the one who ultimately defines us. He is the one who has given us a letter of recommendation written on our hearts by His Spirit. And we are worth something because God says that we are worth something. What greater validation can there be? Take God's opinion of us, put it on the scale on this side, and then take the whole world's opinion and put it on the scale on this side. Which opinion weighs more? Paul will go on to say in a few chapters in 2 Corinthians that God's opinion carries an eternal weight of glory. There is an eternal weight of glory that comes with God's opinion, His assessment, His statement about who we are that far surpasses whatever can be said about us on the other side of the scale. There can be no greater validation than the validation that God gives of us by His Spirit. Or maybe you're not inclined to see your validation in others. Your motto is, I am who I say that I am. And that's all the rage nowadays, I think, because in days gone past, maybe more in my generation, we, we were more prone to let the culture define us. But then I think we've seen how empty that can be. And so now, now what's all the rage is we define ourselves. Our culture is all about expressive individualism about being your true self, being an authentic version of yourself. I think this is especially true if you're under the age of 25. You know this is how your culture sort of operates around you. It's not who others say you are that matters. It's who you say you are that matters. But is that any better? The problem isn't that we are letting someone else define us. The problem is that we are letting some lesser reality define us. Our own opinion of who we are isn't any better than anyone else's opinion of who we are. When I let you define me, I'm letting a finite, limited, temporal reality define me. And what do you know? You don't really know. Who are you to judge? But when I let me define me, I'm still letting a finite, limited, temporal reality define me. And what do I know? I don't know anything about myself. Who am I to judge? This is why self-validation, self-affirmation, self-esteem can't be the final answer. It's no better than others' validation, others' esteem, others' affirmation. Because none of us are qualified to validate one another or to validate ourselves most truly in the deepest way. The one validating judgment, the one true word about who we are, is God's word, because he is the infinite, unlimited, eternal reality. And if he doesn't validate you, it doesn't matter who does. It certainly doesn't matter that you do. In 1 Corinthians 4, 3-4, Paul tells the Corinthians, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent it is the Lord who judges me. Paul understood that his identity was fundamentally rooted in what God judged to be true about him. That's the ultimate reality. And the Lord says who we are, and mercifully and graciously, He says that we are His beloved children. And He has given us a share in His Spirit, His own divine life to prove the reality of His love for us. We are brothers and sisters of Christ who have been filled up with His Spirit and who have our validation in Him. That's fundamentally who we are. So we don't let others say who we are. We don't let ourselves say who we are. We let God say who we are. Then my uh, third point here, the second advantage, or the second uh, thing about following God's glory is God's glory leads to true sufficiency. Paul goes on to say in verses 5 and 6 that the the sufficiency of his apostolic ministry doesn't come from himself, but from God, who by the Spirit has made him a competent minister of the new covenant. Look here at verses 5 and 6. Paul says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. And he's defending this apostolic ministry, and he's saying this, this uh, defense of my apostolic ministry isn't because I have something great in myself. It doesn't come from anything in me. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul knows that he has no sufficiency in himself apart from the Spirit of God. He has no great gifts to offer the world that emerge out of his own resources. And he also knows that even if he did have all the great gifts of the world like the super apostles, it wouldn't really matter because those aren't the gifts that really are needed. The one gift that is truly needed is the gift of the Spirit. And what Paul has is that. God has validated Paul by giving him a share in the Spirit so that Paul can then extend this work of the Spirit to others. What better sufficiency can he have than the sufficiency that comes from God himself? And what was true for Paul is also true for us. We may may not be called to apostolic ministry, but all of us are called to offer something to the world. God wants us to offer something to the world. We're all called to make a difference in the lives of others and to make the world a better place. So what do you have to offer the world? Think about that. Like run through the rolodex in your mind of like all of your gifts, right? All of your your attributes, the things that you would be inclined to say this is what I can offer. Right? What comes to mind about the differences that you can make? in the world? Are you inclined to think about your gifts in the context of your wealth or your beauty, your popularity? Or maybe you think about those things, but then you think, but I don't have those things, so I guess I don't really have much to offer the world. But what if those aren't the real things that the world needs? What if the one thing that you have to offer the world is the one thing that the world needs? When I was uh, a number of years ago, I went to New York with my boys. We did a, a quick day trip, just a quick overnight. And uh, at one point, we were looking for a a place to eat, and we were at our hotel. It was like right in the downtown Manhattan, kind of the business district, and so. Uh, I confess, I felt a little bit like a fish out of water, and uh, we're walking around New York, uh, and we come into this uh, food court thing, and it's right at the end of the day, work day, when all of these uh, business execs are coming out of their offices, and they're coming into this food court to eat, and it's just filled up with really sharp-looking people in sharp-looking dress and sharp-looking dresses with sharp-looking shoes and ties and shirts. And they're all like 27 years old and beautiful and successful and probably rich. And, you know, and I'm in there with with my boys, and uh, I don't think there was like a, you know, there wasn't a child like probably within like 28 square blocks, you know. And so we're in there, and I'm looking around at all these people, and I'm thinking to myself, if I had to pastor in this community, I don't even know where I would begin like, what would I even say to these people? I'm like a dad with a couple of kids. We drive a minivan, right? Like, they don't probably know what a minivan is, you know, here. <laughs> right? And it just felt like they were in such a different world. And honestly, like, they were just too, too cool. They were just not sufficiently cool enough to minister to them. And as I was reflecting on that and, and had some time to really ponder that, I thought, no, you know what? The reality is, that what all of these people in this food court want, despite how they're dressed, despite how good they look, despite their success in the world, they all want to be loved. And they all want to know that their life counts for something. And they want to have a sense of purpose. And they want to know that they matter. They want to know that they're cared for. And that's all what the gospel gives, right? That is the heart of the gospel. That's what the Spirit of God brings into our lives, is a validation of who we are at the deepest part of what it means to be a human being. Not kind of all the surface stuff that's up here that's temporal and finite, but the deepest, truest part of who we are as human beings. And that's what they want, and that's what I have, and that's what I can give, right? So it doesn't matter where we are in life. It doesn't matter the cultural context that we're in most fundamentally. As you think about what you have to offer the world, it's not, do I have enough wealth, and am I popular enough, and do I speak well enough, and do I dress well enough, and all the external earthly trappings, that's not really what it's about. What it's about is, do you have the hope of the gospel in your heart? Have you been touched by the Spirit of God and you know His love and His care in your life? And that's what you can give to people because that's what people really want. That's why they're chasing after all these things up here on the surface. It's because they're trying to find that deep and true thing. In Romans chapter 5, five Paul tells us that God's love has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And in Paul's framework, when he talks about the Spirit, he is talking about the love of God. That God pours out His Spirit in our heart. That's how He pours out His love into our hearts. And the wonder and the glory of the new covenant is that as God gives us a share in His Spirit, He's giving us a share in His love. To share in the new covenant promises of the Spirit is to share in God's love. And when we stop pursuing earthly glories and find our sufficiency in God and His love for us, then we're freed up to offer the world the one thing that people really need, the love and the hope of Jesus. At the end of verse 6, Paul says that the letter kills and the letter is just a shorthand way to talk about earthly glory. Earthly glory, it cannot lead to life. But the heavenly glory of the Spirit, the heavenly glory of God's love, this is what gives life. So I think God is saying to us this morning, don't spend all of your energies pursuing the earthly glory is embodied in the lives of the super apostles then and the super apostles now those things aren't wrong but those things are not ultimate and if you dedicate your life to pursuing earthly glory it leads only and ultimately to emptiness and death pursue the heavenly glory of god's love for you in jesus written on your heart by the spirit of god received freely from God, and then extended freely back to God and to others. Pursue that. That's the sufficiency. That's the validation. God saying who we truly are. Father, thank you that you have sent Christ who speaks a word of hope into our lives. And forgive us for all the ways that we We're so tempted to chase after all the earthly glories of this world. We dedicate our lives to being wealthy or at least wealthy enough. We dedicate our lives to being beautiful or at least beautiful enough, popular, taken care of. All these things, Lord, that we chase after that are not inherently bad, but we, in our zeal to pursue them, we neglect the one thing, that would bring us joy and peace and happiness. That's your love for us, poured out into our hearts through your spirit. So God, teach us to, to forgo all of these earthly things as you call us to something deeper and truer. To hold them loosely in our hands as we pursue the true glory that comes from Christ, even if it leads us into paths of suffering and crosses. Lord, we love you, we thank you for Jesus who has shown us the way and who is the way, and it's in his name we pray, amen.